Thank you, Al. Um, he wanted to read even further because technically the passage goes on to talk about flies and gnats. But you get the picture of um, a lot of bad things happening to poor old Egypt, right? Um, bear with me this morning. Um, to be honest with you, um, it's taken a bit to get the machine in my head going and switching to preaching. So um, I actually struggled to write this one. Um, mainly because my brain was just really not into it. Um, so bear with me as we get through it. Um, but it is a lot about disasters. But before I talk about disasters, let me share with you a story. When I was a kid, um, I loved Godzilla. Did anyone grow up watching Godzilla? Like the real Godzilla, not the animated whatever it is that's on now. Like the cool guy that made things spark and fly when he went through that toy town that he destroyed. Anyone watch that when you were kids? Oh, gee, just me. Hey, thank you. Dan, you're cool. The rest of you, I don't know. Anyway, um, I loved it growing up. It was just really cool. Uh, I mean, Godzilla was weird because he was this big dinosaur that came out of the ocean, destroyed this city, this foreign city. And as a kid, it was like really cool. And all the actors, their voices didn't match their lips. I'm not realizing that it was a foreign film, right? And they're dubbing it. Um, but I loved it as a kid until one day my dad just nonchalantly said to me, you know, Rob, that's a man in a suit. I was like, what? Like, Godzilla's not real? And he's like, no, no, it's just a man in a suit. Can I get a suit like that? No. <laughs> Actually, I was crestfallen. From then on, I couldn't help but see Godzilla and a man in it, right? And what happens when you're young and you find out that the magician is a fraud it completely changes your view on life, doesn't it? Right? You find out that dads and mums are the real Santa Clauses. <laughs> oh, there's kids back there. No, hey, hang on. That's not true. That's a Santa told me. But <laughs> yeah, you got it. <laughs> Good on you. Um, yeah, I've got to be careful. Um, <laughs> but it's interesting when we grow older and we realize that the magic is all a fraud, we become a little bit cynical, don't we? It's a wonder that when teenagers and young adults start to realize that a lot of the things that they held in high regard, that it was magical, that they found the trapdoor under the table or the wires or the man in the suit, and they realize, oh, it's not all for real. It's no wonder that a lot of them do end up turning away from God right? It's a wonder where they start to question all these things. And it's interesting, especially conservative Christians, they feel then a need to prove everything, right? They need to spend millions of dollars building a real ark so we can show the world that this is how Noah built it, or this is how the flood happened, or this is how, you know, the rivers of blood happened. There was this sediment that came up and made the rivers red. I've read so many commentaries this week around these theologians trying to make proof of how these things happen. And we forget that we believe in a supernatural God, right? That, that these things cannot be explained at times. You can't really explain what's going on here. How does he make, Pharaoh's not dumb. If it was something that could be done naturally, he wouldn't have even thought of God. He'd be like, oh yeah, sediment coming up, that happens every three times a year at least. 
What's so special about your God doing that? Frogs, yeah, we've had plagues of frogs many a time. What are you talking about? But these are so supernatural, so out of the control, so unexplainable that they are all taken by it. Now you heard, for those of you here last week, um, Richard shared, you know, the, the, the initial sparring between Pharaoh and Moses and the disconcerting um, uh, thing that the Bible kind of talks about that even though Moses has got this great staff that God gave him and he turned it into a snake, so did the magicians. They just quite nonchalantly did the same thing. <laughs> you can do that, we can do that too. By the way, is anyone here that can do, do that? Please come up over. You would actually over there, but they just kind of nonchalantly do it. And then you read again, you think, oh, look, they're just kind of mimicking what we're doing. And, and you think, what's going on here? Because this is today in particular is the first of the plagues and today is the, the real match. Because last week was just, just kind of like the, um, the, the, the precursor, the, the, uh, uh, the, the little uh, you know, introduction to the real fight that's gonna start today. But what happens when we read these stories is we get really distracted by the details. Oh, what do you mean Pharaoh hardened his heart? Well, just talk about that, Rob. Well, what about the magicians? How did they mimic that? Talk about that. But guess what? That's not what this story is actually about. Right? I get it because when it comes to reading a manual, I throw it away. Right? I get a manual, I'll look at it, and I'm like, yeah, now nah, I can get this right. Because it's all about getting the picture from this machine to that screen. Now, the manual would help, really. But the manual then goes into all these little nitty-bitty stuff that, you know, it's 15 amp hertz to 12 degrees south, and oh, whatever, gone. Get me straight to the point. What's the point of this? And sometimes we read the Bible a little bit too much like a manual. God's trying to give us the big picture here. And it's a big picture that the Israelites get. But over millennia of reading this, we, as modern-day Christians, have lost it. We've lost the meaning of what's going on right here. Now, I only have two points to share with you this morning. Like I said, I kind of struggled getting through this, but there are some exciting things. I'm gonna take you on for a bit of a ride to get to the point. But the first point is this, only God. And I wanna really emphasize the full stop. Only God, full stop. Now look at this, you've got Egypt, you've got this nobody from the desert who was herding goats, they're coming against each other. One's trying to prove the other's better. The fight starts, but we get focused in on Moses, we get focused in on Pharaoh, but this is actually not about them. It's actually about God. Now, uh, I don't know who's preaching the, um, the Ten Commandments, but I am gonna jump straight to Exodus chapter 20. Everybody know what the first commandment says? Uh, is it this line? Is everyone okay with that? Oh, it's a trick question, come on. It's, that's not what it says. You know what it says? It says this. 
It makes more sense if it said that though, wouldn't it? But instead he says, you shall have no other gods before me. It's interesting how God words things at times. He's not denying the existence of other gods. What he's saying here is there will be no one above me. There will be nothing above me. Anyone know the, uh, the Shema Yisrael? Anyone know the Shema prayer? Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai. No? Um, Hero Israel, I am your Lord. You are our, the Lord our God. Um, you are one. Anyone? Deuteronomy? No? Everyone's just kind of looking at me like, what are you saying? Um, it's the prayer that, that the Jews pray twice a day, morning and evening. You alone are our God, basically, is what they're saying. Adonai is the reference. His name is Yahweh, but they don't pronounce Yahweh. They say Adonai. Eloheinu, you are the God. You are our God. You are one. It's the argument they use against Christians about the Trinity, for example, because they say God is one. But the argument isn't singular. It's not to say that God is singular. He's the only one. He is the one above all. And it's reminding them during their lifetime that they have to put God number one. Now, the Israelites believed that there were other gods. They believed that and they even followed other gods. They followed Molech, they followed the Baals, they followed other gods. They fell for them. And I mean, immediately after this whole event, they end up in the desert and guess what they do? They make a golden calf. So they believed in other gods. God wasn't really interested in trying to prove himself above it. He was telling them, hey, your allegiance is to me and me alone. Now take that into context and let's go back to the plague. In one corner, you've got Pharaoh, king of what is at that time the greatest empire on the planet. Great architectural buildings. They basically invented a form of, of, of writing. Amazing at what they did for the time period that they did it. And they had a pantheon of gods. Along comes a goat herder who says the God of the slaves who lives somewhere in the wilderness, he's the God. This is actually a cosmic battle. This is God facing for the first time the pantheon of gods that are surrounding the Israelites. Now the first, first, um, bear with me, it'll make more sense as I get along, but, but come to this first um, plague. It's called the plague of, the, um, of, the, of the, um, the blood, basically. The converting water into blood. Now the whole, you've got to be Jew to get this because this is the funny thing. There is so much symbolism involved in the plagues and, and the whole Exodus story. For example, it starts off with the plague of blood, right? It turns the water into blood. Well, the whole book of Exodus starts with what? Pharaoh wanting to turn the Nile into rivers of blood, but with the blood of the Israelites, right? There's symbolism there, but the biggest symbolism actually comes with creation. What happens is creation begins with the Spirit of God hovering over the waters and out of the waters, creation happens right? And it ends with 
the creation of humanity, the pinnacle of, you know, creation. The story in Exodus, the plagues begin with the desecration of the waters and ends with the killing of humanity. The firstborn is a very important person in the lineage of of people. What God is doing here is undoing creation to save his people. I'll get onto that a little bit more. But there's a lot of symbolism going on here, but it's more than just that. It's bigger than just symbolism here. Anyone know who this is? And no, he did not star in the Avatar. Nope. He is a god, an Egyptian called Happy. Guess who he is the god of? Thank you, my beautiful daughter. Takes it straight from her dad. Happy is the god of the Nile. God is facing off each and every Egyptian god. He starts with happy, who's not so happy. Now, what's the second plague? What does that look like? A frog person. That's hechet. Everybody say hechet. Yep. It's the god of fertility, and she is always with a frog's head. God is facing off the Egyptian gods, and one by one, he begins to knock them off. Now, sure, initially, the uh, magicians, with their secret arts, are able to try and counter God, but as it gets further on, they're, they're losing it. And towards the end, anyone know who this is? No. It's Ra, the sun god. Who knows what the ninth blackens the earth, turns the sun off. The Ra, uh, Ra was an important god because Ra rep, was represented by Pharaoh. Right? Ra, the sun god. Somebody said this god here. Osiris? He is the god of death. The tenth plague. This is a cosmic battle. Now we, uh, look, don't get me wrong, when I was talking with Richard during the week, he gave me some really great notes as he was going to continue the sermon this morning. And I really got into it. And then, of course, I get distracted because I start reading a little too much for my, my well-being maybe at times. And I got totally caught on this line. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is so right. Yes, okay. Kind of all pieced together. And, but I realized that sometimes me, for me, I get into the nitty gritty and we get caught by the story and we don't see the big picture. And the big picture is this, God, only God. He's not just telling the Egyptians, he's telling his people that you have lived in this place for so long. You've heard about Happy and Chet and, and Ra and, and Osiris and, and, and all these gods. I am beating them one by one because I'm above all. Now today, well, we don't have a happy we don't have a Ra, or, but we have other gods that tend to take 
our lives. That though we don't worship them as gods, if somebody from the outside looking in who is seeing how we're living our lives, they would say they are gods in your lives. And the story of Exodus, the whole story, begins with this whole point, only God. The first commandment, only God. He is the one who needs to reign supreme in your lives. No one else should be taking his place. Nothing else should be taking his place. And as he is teaching the Israelites through these stories and through this encounter and through all these weird and wonderful things that we can't explain, what he's saying is there is nothing on this planet. Everything is here. I am here, he's saying. Only God. Blowing away happy, blowing away hechet, blowing away ra, blowing away Osiris. And in the end, the Egyptians have got nothing left. The gods are all defeated. Pharaoh was hardened because he knew he had a pantheon of gods to trust. And each one came tumbling down till the last one he could, he had nothing left to rely on. Sometimes our hearts are hardened because we have a little bit too much to rely on. A little too much that's not God. But that's not the whole story. It's not just only God. There is another part to the story that is so important. It's not just God showing his people, I am God. It's also the story of salvation and redemption. This is a God that will do anything to rescue us, that will do anything to save us. He will undo creation to save us. He will, let me think, he will send his only son, a part of himself, to die to save us. In the story of Exodus, it's the undoing. The plagues are literally, uh, or figuratively really, uh, the undoing of creation. He's undoing it piece by piece. Chaos is reigning supreme in the land so that he can save his people. And then in the New Testament, it is the death of an innocent man, our Savior, his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the lengths to which God wants to save us. But it's not just about saving us. It's about us living a redeemed life. In the Old Testament, it's the law, how we can change ourselves to be better for each other and for him. And in the New Testament, there's a new law, law of grace. Redemption found through the blood of Jesus Christ that changes us. It has to. He's not just interested in, okay, you're saved, go about your life. No, you're saved and you are redeemed. And the whole story of Israel from this point onwards is a story of redemption. He saved them. Why is they always reminded of Egypt? They are reminded of Egypt like we today are reminded of Jesus. Salvation comes from the Lord.
And so the challenge that we face, the challenge that we all face, is how are we living this redeemed life? I've had my head in the sand the last couple of weeks. Kind of moping around, feeling sorry for myself. It's not much of a redeemed life. And I sat in an elders meeting on Tuesday night thinking, I'm I'm not doing what God's calling me to do. What, What do I need to do to change? Poor old Richard had already started doing some work on this sermon. I said, do you mind if I take it? I'm not ready for it, but it's not about being ready. It's about being obedient. I don't know how I'm going to pull this off. I'm not in the right headspace. But it's not about that. Only God. Amen? So where are you at? Where do you stand right now? Is it only God in your life? Is he ruling supreme? Or are there other things that are shadowing him? And and for many of you who call yourselves saved are you living a living a redeemed life is it a moment for you right now to just kind of pause and confess reconcile with God because tomorrow's a new day it's a good thing every day is a new day God is going to great lengths to save you so that you could live a redeemed life. And boy, does this world need redeemed lives. Does this country not need redeemed lives? Here we are. Use us, Lord. Ask the worship team to come up. Let us pray. Father God, (laughs) you showed happy and you showed the blue people and the frog people and, and the sun people and You just showed us that you are God, that you are our God and the great lengths that you have gone to reach us, to save us, turning creation upside down. Lord, forgive us, Father, that sometimes we do not live the redeemed life that we know we have in you and that sometimes we are caught up in ourselves and sometimes the tragedies of life around us pull us down. Forgive us, Lord, for that. Forgive us that sometimes other things have taken more importance in our lives, some work and and so many mundane things. Forgive us, Lord, we pray. This morning, we just want to turn back to you, only you, God, only you. Thank you, Lord, that you care for us so much, that you sent your only son, Jesus Christ, to die for us so that our lives are now redeemed in him.